Welcome to the Thicadilla Podcast. This week, we talk to Matthew Saez, a 28-year-old psychologist who has spent a good part of the 2020 quarantine reflecting back on his childhood. We'll discuss how his identity as an Afro-Latinx person around middle school was challenged by authority figures, what he's learned about his racial identity since that time, including how a ton of pride about his family's history hardened his resilience, and finally, how his lived experience as an Afro-Latinx person impacts the way he approaches the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as what he says is the most difficult challenge of his life so far, being a dad. Let's get started. So Matthew Sias is a regular guy. He lives in northern New York with his family and works hard running his business consulting tech firms and developing diversity initiatives from a psychological perspective. He lives a good life. But underneath his current external success, there is something important that still troubles him and which many of his adult friends do not know, that his experience growing up as a black Latino in the Mariner's Harbor area of Staten Island, New York, almost broke him. Years of bullying, harassment, and negation of the dark color of his skin, often by his fellow Latinos, caused him pain he still deals with today. This type of colorism and racism in the Latinx community is an important issue that is still not talked about a lot inside Latin communities, so this will be the first of many such conversations. Why don't we get started by talking about where you grew up. I know that you grew up in New York. Tell us about that experience and how it informed you as a person. How did you become who you became because you were living in New York as an Afro-Latino person? Okay. So it's actually really interesting. I think if you were to probably poll the majority of, of Dominicans living in New York, the majority of them might say they come from Washington Heights or the Bronx. But actually, I grew up in Staten Island, New York. And Staten Island is separated from the rest of the city by the, the Hudson Harbor. But you have to take a boat to get into Manhattan. But we also have a bridge into Brooklyn and two bridges into Jersey. So my father, he's from Santo Domingo. My mother's from Puerto Rico. They met in Manhattan in the 70s, got married, had two kids, my two older sisters in Brooklyn, and then bought a house in Staten Island and had two other kids. One of them is my other sister. So I have three sisters. The youngest is me. So I grew up in an area called Mariners Harbor in Staten Island. If you're familiar with Wu-Tang Clan, there was the dojo they called their studio where they recorded it. But that was down the block from where I lived. Mariners Harbor, everybody in Staten Island on the North Shore of the island knows where that is, right? It's one of those areas. It's kind of like if you were to talk about like, uh, like Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, everybody knows Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. Everyone knows Mariners Harbor in Staten Island. So I grew up there. Most of my Dominican family is in Providence. Grandmother and grandfather were living uptown in Harlem. So, you know, I spent a lot of time going back and forth between there and Staten Island. Some family in Brooklyn, where my mom lived when she was younger, and then a lot of family overseas out of the country. My Puerto Rican family scattered all throughout with Puerto Ricans. I think two cultures that are so close in proximity in terms of the islands, but so different. But My experience growing up as, a, as an Afro-Latino in Staten Island was one of extreme familiarity and one of super intense estrangement, right? So I went to a Catholic school. So that's one thing that I always tell people when I have this conversation is that, you know, when we talk about privilege, especially as Latinos, we don't realize that we have 
some privilege that Americans that have been here for generations don't have. So like black Americans, African-Americans, a lot of them don't have the privilege of going to a private school. My mother is from Puerto Rico, but she's her father, my grandfather, he served in the military in World War II, the Korean War. So there are certain privileges afforded to those kinds of people. And, you know, she grew up with an education. My father went as far as high school, you know, came here when he was 14, 16, went as far as high school, didn't finish high school. And, uh, you know, he relied on my mother for that kind of guidance for us as children. So I was living in an area where you could say the poverty is pretty intense, mostly people of color. I'm talking when I would leave my house and we lived in like attached houses, like, you know, I don't know if you've been to Brooklyn, but if you, if you are familiar with the houses that are attached for the blocks, kinds of attached houses across the street mm-hmm. and all around the area is just public housing. So we didn't live in public housing, but that's our reality. I was walking down the block and taking two buses to go to a private school across the island. And uh, that changes things for, for a young person growing up in that kind of environment. The last 20, 30 years, it got horrible. Shots fired around 6 Wednesday evening on Roxbury Street between Grandview and Lockman Avenues. They got there, they found 47-year-old with a gunshot wound to the head. Last Thursday, the group approached a 34-year-old man and shot him twice near 124 Brayband Street in Mariner's Harbor. The victim was wounded in the arm and thigh, but has since been released from the hospital. According to New York State Health Indicators, Mariner's Harbor is indeed one of the poorest areas in Staten Island, even though The Rock, as many locals call the borough, has a poverty index of 11.76% the lowest of the five boroughs in New York City. The poverty index measures the number of people whose income falls below the poverty line, which for the latest numbers available from 2019 is under $26,200 for a family of four, based on data from the U.S. Health and Human Services Department. The poverty index also rates unemployment, literacy skills, and long-term health predictors. But how can there be such a high level of poverty in a borough that MarketWatch recently called staunchly middle class? and has the highest rate of New York home ownership at 70%? That's because of race disparities between white and non-white neighborhoods that show up in demographic and economic opportunity data. To start, out of half a million people that live on Staten Island as of 2019, the vast majority are white residents, 75.1% of them in fact, with 18.7% Hispanic, 11% Asian, and 11.5% Black. By the way, we use Hispanic here and not Latinx for these statistics because that is the official U.S. designation. While the borough's diversity has increased in the last 20 years, even from the time Matthew lived there in the late 90s and 2000s, studies have found that parts of the borough, like Mariner's Island, have not received the same amount of investment in health and human services, an issue going back generations. Knowing the poverty index correlates to access to health It's not surprising to learn that just this year, in the middle of the pandemic, the borough has the highest percentage of the number of COVID-19 tests per 100,000 people in the boroughs at Staten Island, but that this level of access to tests does not extend to black and brown areas. This lack of access affects kids. The National Survey of Children with Special Healthcare Needs found that Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Staten Island only had slots for mental health treatment for, quote, 1% of children ages 0 to 4, and 12% of children ages 5 to 17 who have treatment needs. 
and the kids in the poorest areas like Mariner's Island had the highest rates of mental health issues. About 10% of children in New York City ages 5 to 17 are estimated to have a serious emotional disturbance, which makes them unable to perform academically or socially or worse. What do you think about on a day-to-day basis when you're taking that, you know, ride into school and then coming back? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually, it's so insane because I remember um, there was a school bus that would pick us up from, there was like a Western Beef, which is like a really big grocery store out there. And it was like an empty lot. The, the school bus would pick me up and would take me to my school, about an hour bus ride. When I was in the third grade, I stopped taking the school bus. I started lying to my parents and telling them that I was getting on the school bus, but I was actually taking the city bus. I was taking two buses to get to school because I just couldn't handle the situation on the school bus. These kids were like, they, I would get bullied every day. I hated it. Oh, really? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't take it. One of my sisters was in high school at the time, and she would take the, the, the bus outside of our house to go to her school, which is a public school right around the corner. The bus at the time was $2. In New York City, you pay the bus fare, you get a transfer. So my dad would go to the bank and get her quarters for the month. I would actually steal quarters from her jar for her bus money just so I can get the bus to go to school because I couldn't do it. Can you tell me a little bit about that bullying, if it's okay? What happened? Yeah. What, what was going on that made it so hard that he actually would force you to spend money that you didn't have and to take a little bit longer to get to school? Yeah, it's, it's kind of profound, right? Because we're talking about me as an eight-year-old. You know, like that's insane. So there was, it was mostly the older kids. There were like a couple of kids in my grade that I, I like, I felt comfortable around. I even have a childhood friend that followed me to that school in the second grade or third grade. But she, ironically enough, she's also Puerto Rican, but she's a white Latina. She's white passing. Easy for her to kind of adapt the situation. I was probably one of two black kids in that school. There was another girl who was Dominican. She also had a very hard time. And it gets deep, but for where we are right now, the bullying, essentially racial slurs, forcing me to get to the back of the bus, like taking my books and throwing them out the window while the bus is moving, just taking my stuff from me, hitting me, trying to start fights with me, ripping my clothes, you know, like just messing with me, just like psychologically abusing me. And I remember when I was like five or six and my dad, we would always walk around the neighborhood like late at night, late at night. And he would always tell me like, you know, you need to keep a 360 view around you. You need to look at everything around you because when you look like us or when people, when, you know, people aren't going to understand, they're not going to understand who you are or where you come from. So you need to always be aware. And that stuck with me, right? So I made a decision as an eight-year-old kid. I was like, you know, excuse my language, fuck this. (laughs) I'm going to take the, (laughs) so I would walk to the bus And my dad, he worked in Manhattan. He worked two jobs. So he would go to work at six in the morning, come home at three in the morning. And so he would take the bus to go to the ferry in the opposite direction. I was going in that direction. So I would wait to see he can't see me. And I'd jump on the city bus and I would go. The 48 would take me all the way down Forest Avenue. I would the 48 where I was, was the third stop from the, from the bridge into Jersey, the Goffles Bridge. And I would go all the way to uh, a point in Staten Island where you can take a road that takes you. So I'm talking east to west right now. I would go, I would go 
west, 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 west. And I'd get to a point where I can get as north as possible. On the, so I'm going across the island on public transportation, but I'm enrolled in a Catholic school. My parents have no idea. And uh, even when I tell them to this day, like, they don't believe me. They're like, you know, that didn't happen. Really, my mom, my, it's my mom. Like, that, that, you, you, never, you never told me about that. And I'm like, I did. I told you every day. What did your mom, what did your mom and your dad say about the, all the bullying and you'd show up with your clothes all messed up? I went to Catholic school from K through eight. I went to a school in an area that's predominantly Mexican for the first, for like kindergarten and first grade. And I'll never forget. For some reason, my mom woke us up one morning and was like, we're going to go to this, see this other school. It was so far. It was like a 45 minute drive. We interviewed with the principal, me and my sister, who was two years older than me. And they're like asking us questions. And I, we ended up going to that school the next day. And it's because that school was closing. The school we were at previously was closing. But the school I was in previously was much more diverse. It was in a predominantly Latino area. And I even told my mom, I was like, I don't like this place. I don't like this school. It just feels different. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. And, but remember, I love my mom. She's like one of my best friends. But when it comes to things about race, it's hard. It's, and I think now with all of this stuff happening with the protests, she's seeing how active I am with my daughter and she's beginning to understand. But when I was younger, there was no conversation. And also 20 years ago, it just wasn't a conversation, especially not for Afro-Latinos. When I would tell her, these kids are calling me names. They're get, telling me these racial slurs. And she would go, well, tell them you're not black. Tell them you're not black. Tell them you're Dominican and you're Puerto Rican. This episode of Tequeria is brought to you in collaboration with Technology Transformation Services, or TTS. TTS applies modern methodologies and technologies to improve the public's experience with the federal government. Today we get to hear from TTS employee Leilani Martinez, Director of Content and Outreach at USAGov, a TTS platform that makes it easier for everyone to find and understand the government services and information they need anytime, anywhere, any way they want. And a quick note for our listeners. The posting of this podcast, as well as any advertisement shown before or throughout, is not an endorsement of the source or advertisement and does not reflect the official policy or position of TTS. TTS does not endorse the content or personal views shared by other podcast guests in the episode. And now let's hear from Leilani Martinez. So tell me about the connection between TTS and USAGov. When did you find out about TTS? When did TTS become a part of your life? And how did TTS help you in your career at this government institution? So USAGov is part of TTS. We're under the Technology Transformation Services Organization. Um, when I uh, started with what is now known as the Public Experience Portfolio or USAGov, um, things looked a little different. The structure, the program has evolved and the structure has become um, bigger, right? And now it, there's many programs under TTS. There's 18F, there's um, solutions, and I'm, um, our program is under the solution side of things within TTS. Um, but we've always had the same mission, right? We've always had the same um, desire to, to serve the public and to use technology to transform and modernize government and to really improve, right, how we are delivering services to the public. 
I think it's very awesome nowadays, right? Because there's there's so much potential within TTS. There's so many opportunities in our organization to really make a change and be part of something bigger. What I love about the job and our program and TTS is that we we can touch the rest of government. We can really collaborate with the rest of government. So yes, we are very much, of course, in tune with USA.gov, the site, et cetera, but we don't do any of that in isolation. And that applies to many, and I think all the programs within TTS, right? We are seen as the leaders and people that can really improve and collaborate with other groups in other federal agencies to do a lot of this work. And I think that's the exciting part of of TTS, um, that you really get a sense of what's happening across the government and you can really influence um, and have an impact on how other government services or other government programs are are doing their work. Um, And that's pretty awesome. That's great, Leilani. Could you give me an example of how people could make that sort of a difference. Are are there some anecdotes over the last few years of how having somebody, perhaps even a a Latinx person in those positions can make an appreciable difference in the government through TTS? I'd love some awesome examples if you have. Yeah, one of the most amazing moments for me in my career, I have to say, was in 2017. I know I mentioned the the role that USAGov plays during times of emergency. 2017 was also a challenging time in the history of this country in terms of uh, all the hurricanes, right, that um, unfortunately um, we, we had to deal with. It was Irma, Harvey, and Maria. And I have to say that it came full circle for me, 2017, um, Hurricane Maria. Um, it was really um, uh, devastating for Puerto Rico. And we did so much work during Hurricane Maria. So DHS, Department of Homeland Security, designated USAGov once again as the official lane of communication for the public in 2017. We did a lot of work translating uh, materials into Spanish, but I'm talking, this was 24-7. We were leveraging contacts in, in Puerto Rico to ensure um, people were getting some sort of communication. I mean, if you, can, if you can remember, people had no way to connect with others. It was amazing um, to see how we were coming together in our team to figure out creative ways to get um, information about government programs, government services, basic information to let people know, hey, there's something here you can apply to or be careful about X, Y, and C. This is what's happening in your area. We were coming up with like creative ways on social media, doing short PSAs, et cetera, that people didn't even have to click on links so they could get information right away. The whole team came together to do this, but I have to say that it really made a difference having um, bilingual, bicultural um, employees in in the team. For me, it became a very personal um, work right? Because my family is still in the island. So for me, it was work, but it's also, it's, it's my family, it's my friends. I'm trying to also help here. But also it provided um, many of us that connection when work and something that personal that you care so much about comes together. And having the, um, the background, having kind of that cultural sensitivity was really key. You know, there were many times that we were even advising others 
about certain messages. This is, let's be cultural sensitive here. Let's make sure that we're being empathetic. Let's make sure we're taking into account some of these cultural nuances. And that is important um, to have in a team, especially when you're dealing situations of emergency or disaster. And that you want to make sure that we are being that we're being very sensitive. The communication was was really, I, I thought was was one of the most um, proudest, most difficult, but one of the moments that really marked my career. Now let's go back to Matthew and our guests discussing blackness in the Latinx community. So how do you internalize that? What how what kind of an effect did that have on you in your life? I beat myself up about it. Like I got into fights. I got in trouble in school. I was, and you know, not like serious trouble, but I was just like, uh, and I don't think being talkative as, as a kid is anything to be in trouble for, but I was very talkative in class because I was very outspoken. They would teach certain things in class. And I would say, that doesn't sound right. I remember when they taught us about Christopher Columbus and my mom had told me the history and in Latino families, there are certain fallacies that for some reason, preserve like the story of Cristobal Colón's for some reason like Latinos like are so proud to say like well we are Spanish and Taino and Africano but it's like this guy came to the western hemisphere came to the Americas and like committed genocide he actually uh, enslaved all of the people living there I, I sat right in front of my teacher's desk Mrs. Logan in the fifth grade and we're learning in the textbook is like, you know, Christopher Columbus came and brought all these great things and went back to, to wherever the, he came from with like, with corn and whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> he went back with slaves. What do you mean? And they were like, that's attention. So, so that's, that's one part of internalizing this. Like the question you asked me is, I have this immense pride as a Latino that I'm taught from my grandparents and my mother and my father. But at the same time, I have this unique experience as a young black boy that is growing up in a household where that is not being acknowledged and it's not being spoken about. And mind you, my sisters, all three of us, we all look the same. My mother is white. <laughs> I'm sure if we traced her lineage back, it would be like uh, pure Spanish descent, you know? So she would always say, you're not black. And I would say to her, well, look at my dad, look at that side of my family. When I'm playing in the neighborhood, I'm accepted by all these people. And I, when there are white people that come into the neighborhood, collectively, there's like a defense. And I'm part of that defense. Like I'm included, I'm involved, and like I'm accepted. So going to that school was like, well, these kids don't accept me in my neighborhood. And like, what is going on? So my only reaction was I need to cut off the parts of, of this that I can. I need, to, I need to save myself. So that's why I said, I'm not going to take the school bus. I'm going to take the city bus. I would <laughs> get on the city bus and I would always get home before my parents because my mom is a teacher, ironically enough, Spanish teacher. So she'd be home at four o'clock, my dad at three in the morning. So I would always get home first before anybody. Uh, so nobody could ever figure out that I was literally doing this. I was not taking the school bus. I was taking the city bus every single day. The rejection of one's own racial identity during childhood, experts say, can lead to paralyzing physical and mental health outcomes. I spoke to Dr. Adolfo Cuevas from Tufts University and asked him what he thought about Matthew's story. Dr. Cuevas is the director of the Psychosocial Determinants of Health Lab at Tufts University, a group with a team of researchers investigating the interrelationship between, quote, 
race, ethnicity, psychosocial stressors, and health-related outcomes. The doctor said rejection of blackness is sadly a common occurrence in Latinx families. One of the things his group has found is that parents are not only obviously extremely important as the primary source helping develop young people's sense of self, but that their influence serves as a form of control on the secondary source of self-knowing, the outside world. There's a, a really great study by Kamara Jones, uh, and she found that race is a risk indicator of health. In other words, if you identify as Hispanic or you identify as, as black, you're more likely to have poor health. What she found was that if other people perceive you to be black, regardless of how you identify yourself, that's, ev that's even a stronger predictor of your health outcome. So just to even place that within a, a context of identity, If other people are perceiving you a particular way, but yet your parents are not necessarily developing a healthy aspect of your identity when it comes to race, you're left wondering why you're being mistreated in a particular way. Your parents are not acknowledging your own racial identity or important component of yourself, your makeup. I mean, that leaves one with a gaping hole of understanding who they are in the future and how they operate in the world. It, it, it's such a difficult thing. But the outside world can and often does fill in that gaping hole for people with negative stereotypes that show up in Latinx-connected histories. Just like the story of Christopher Columbus brings up core identity inequalities for Matthew. There's been studies to show that black and brown people think about their race daily. And, and white people do not. Just that alone shows you that people are, are operating with totally different life experiences. And the reason why oftentimes people think about their race is because they have reason to think about their race. They're being mistreated. They see not just in stories, you know, like Matt's story about slavery and Christopher Columbus. He was already viewing the inequities of, of, of racial trauma through that story, whereas I'm assuming the white students were not. And so, so, so there in and of itself shows that people, black and brown people oftentimes have to think about their race in a day-to-day -day basis because of the unfair treatment that they tend to receive. The very idea that once race is constantly brought up as a negative, as ugly, as unideal, leads to wear and tear on the body and higher physical risks like obesity, hypertension, and even death. The way that a lot of kids internalize that sort of denial of their own sense of self from their own parents is that, as I think a lot of it, you either actively rebel against that by telling the teacher that this is the real truth that you understand it to be, which is based on facts, right? How did that change as you got older? Wow. You know, as I progressed throughout Catholic school, it really, the, the rebellion in me just, just grew so much stronger. And uh, I was supposed to go to Catholic high school. Tuition was paid. You know, my, my, I, and I look back and I'm like, my parents worked, my dad worked so hard to be able to afford a private education for all four of his kids two jobs for 37 years. And I literally said, I can't do it. 
and I just left. And I enrolled in uh, public school, the same high school that two of my sisters went to. And I started going to high school there. So honestly, I'll say this between the age of eight and 13, like my, my Catholic education, most of it, honestly, I just, I don't really remember. And that's because as an adult, as I've gone to therapy and as I've spoken with professionals, like friends that are professionals, and even in my own like schooling and in my graduate course through my training as a psychologist, I'm understanding that like that I don't remember. I blocked it out because of the, the traumatic experience. So as I, as I was approaching college, like, I mean, there's a whole thing, a whole, a whole history of, of what happened in my life in high school. But I remember being 17 and writing on my, on my hand every day, the number of days that were left until I was done, until I was out because I wanted to leave New York city. I wanted to get out of there. And I chose Buffalo because it's as far as you can possibly go in New York without leaving New York. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it made me quite resentful of my parents, even though at every single step in my life, they were just looking out for me. And it's not their fault. It's not their fault. It's generational. It's taught. It's ingrained in our culture. Literally, the essence of Latinidad is the opposite it, it contradicts at every intersection. It is just like in vile opposition of being black uh, because that's just the history. That's just what it means to be Latino. Matthew is right that throughout history, Latin American countries have actively rejected black people, often not seeing them as full citizens. For example, in Mexico, the black population that lives on the East Coast off of the Gulf was not recognized as full citizens of the country until five years ago. This is a clip from Fusion about how black people grow up indoctrinated by anti-blackness. When I was little, I used to paint myself with lime powder to show my mom that I wanted to be white. I always wanted to be white until I realized that brown skin is beautiful and that people are pretty in their own color. If we as a culture or ethnic group don't exist, it's obvious that the government wouldn't be responsible for dedicating a budget to our needs, and that is what we want. I think it's really good that they are fostering this dialogue among young people because, unfortunately, we have been losing our traditions and we don't know where we come from. What's really missing here is education about Afroculture, more knowledge about the different types of culture we have. According to Professor Jill Richardson, the Associate Professor of English at the Borough of Manhattan Community College at the CUNY Graduate Center, who wrote the book The Afro-Latino Experience in Contemporary American Literature and Culture, Engaging Blackness, Matthew's Afro-Latino experience has been around as long as Afro-Latinos have been in this country. I keep thinking about a book called Down These Mean Streets by Perry Thomas. He published it in 1967. It was an autobiographical narrative, autobiographical and fiction narrative um, about his life growing up in Harlem. You know, Perry Thomas is, he is uh, Cuban and Puerto Rican. His father's Afro-Cuban. His mom is a white Puerto Rican. And just him having to grow up and try to relate to them was huge. You know, his father 
would not recognize any sort of African ancestry or the pain that his son was dealing with growing up in these streets in, in Harlem, you know, in the 1950s. And his mom just, you know, simply couldn't understand. You know, she, she wanted to, but couldn't understand. Yet even with a difficult history, Professor Richardson sees Afro-Latinx of today's generation actively fighting back publicly more than ever. I get a lot of my information from YouTube in terms of pop culture. There's a great uh, channel called Pero Like, and they just released a video maybe last month where, and it's all, you know, young people, millennials and uh, Generation Z, people who decided, Afro-Latino people who decided to have a conversation with their parents about what they had been through as, you know, Afro-Latinx, people growing up in the Caribbean and then moving to the United States. And that was really the first time that I've seen something like that, where you had this younger generation directly confronting their parents. It wasn't until I was older that I was able to begin reading and researching and writing on my own that I said, you know, I can't blame my parents for this, you know. And it was after like many falling outs with my parents. Like there were times where uh, I went to I went to college and after my first year, I didn't go back to, to New York for two years, three years. I just stayed in Buffalo. You didn't see them? No, I just didn't see them. You know, we'd call every now and then, but I just chose to kind of stay away. And I have a lot of friends in New York City that are like, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? And I'm like, you know, maybe eventually. But I just think that the pain I experienced, and now that, now that I'm actually being able to speak about this with somebody, I've never really spoken about this, but the pain that I experienced as a, as a young person growing up in the environment that I did is just too much for me to pick up my life in New York City. And I tried after I graduated college. Uh, I went back to New York, got a job, was there for about two years. And I was just like, mm, I can't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Avoidance of psychological and even physical pain is a common reaction by children who are bullied. The National Bullying Prevention Center's coordinator, Bailey Lindgren, said in an MSN article in 2018 that inaction is one of the main symptoms parents should actually look for if they want to know if their child is going through the same thing. Frequent exhaustion, stomach aches, and learning difficulties are other symptoms kids experience. The NBPC noted on the 2019 National Center for Educational Statistics survey that the main reported reasons kids are bullied include physical appearance, race, ethnicity, gender, disability, religion, and sexual orientation. The same data set shows that 23% of African-American students, 23% of Caucasian students, 16% of Hispanic students, and 7% of Asian students all report being bullied at school, and that 8% of bullying happens on buses, just like it happened with Matthew. Other places where bullying happens is in the hallway or stairwell at school, inside the classroom, in the cafeteria, outside of school grounds, and increasingly online. According to the Parent Training and Information Center's National Bullying Prevention Center, an organization funded by the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Special Education Programs, the biggest effect of this bullying by far is that it has a, quote, negative effect on how they feel about themselves, their relationships with friends and family, and their schoolwork. And some of the things said to kids and older adults, too, that qualify as bullying include insults or dog whistles, based on the color of their skin. I've had students, light-skinned Dominican students, calling a Afro-Latino male like a cocolo, right? 
or being very vulgar with the way he is referring to him. I don't even know that. What is Kokolo? It's sort of like, look at this black kid. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like you are both from the same país. And because he's way darker than you, you want to call him like Blackie or something like that. You know, wow. it's, it's, it's so embedded in the culture. That is Kia Fiara Melendez, a teacher and a social worker for School in the Square in New York City, a public charter school in the Washington Heights neighborhood. She runs one-on-one group and family therapy sessions through the school's social-emotional department, which helps kids identify and think through issues of identity. Many Latinx children there, she says, experience intrafamily fights when whiter family members do not talk to black ones, respectfully or even at all, sometimes alluding to them as being not as attractive or intelligent. On-the-ground connection counseling like that found at School in the Square is part of larger systemic changes schools are attempting to help stop bullying and racism in some U.S. classrooms. Like a lot of other race-based issues, systemic racial progress comes about when administrative leadership pays attention to how kids actually interact based on their race and ethnicity, and eventually trickles down to curriculums. Menendez says that for her, paying attention to kids is always about following up on their questions with honesty so they can understand, accept, and fuse together their external and their internal selves. We are able to hone in on what identity means. What does identity look like for you? Has identity been discussed in your family, right? And having those deep-rooted conversations in class where there are some kids who are like, oh shit, right? Like, I'm Dominican and... There are African roots in that culture. And I'm white passing. So are you saying that I am an Afro-Latinx, right? Like kids, kids are, are very um, inquisitive and curious about who they are when they're learning about this information. And then they're going back home and having these conversations with their parents. Like, is this really what it is? Like, am I black? Right. Um, And that that goes back to the same notion of, oh, I might be white passing. And then it's a whole different conversation about the anti-blackness in the Dominican culture or in the Puerto Rican culture or in the Cuban culture. And how is that perpetrated or how is that passed on from generation to generation? And when does it stop? Right. Um, And it stops. It could potentially stop in the classroom once the child becomes aware that these things are actually happening. I think that it really takes these conversations of exploration and awareness of our students to be able to change their narratives. Another school doing this identity work in New York is Fieldston Lower School, which received attention years ago when New York Magazine profiled its curriculum that asked kids, with their parents' permission, to separate them into racial groups they identify with. In that article, the writer Lisa Miller reported on how the school's curriculum encourages children, starting in third grade, to consider their lived experience of race and to think about how it affects the way that they think about themselves and others. I highly recommend reading it if you want to know more about their work. Did you ever have a conversation with your parents about that, about what it was that was that wanted to for you to so desperately move away? Or did they already know and it just was it was kind of like this big thing that was untold? 
I'd love to know what your perspective was on their understanding of what was happening to you and the reason why you were leaving. Right. So, I, you know, we've never had a conversation about why I left. We've also never had conversations about what was different about raising me as opposed to raising three girls and me being the youngest. We've never had a lot of conversations. With my father, we've had a lot of unique experiences that we've shared relating to like a number of traumas. There's just certain things that I just know we're never going to speak about. And I've come to a point in our relationship where I can still love her like, I mean, more than I love anybody else on earth, but I know that we're never going to be able to speak about some things. And as an adult, as a, as a father, I have to be able to kind of, maybe it's not very healthy, but I have to be able to kind of put that on the side because I need to make sure that I'm not doing that to my child. You know, I want to be able to have conversations about every single aspect of my daughter's experience with her. And yeah, to this day, I, I carry a lot of that pain with me. But, you know, I, I think, I just think it's, maybe it's, maybe it's necessary for our people to be able to become better and more understanding of their children. And I, I think with my father, we could have those conversations. I don't think we need to. I think we have a deeper understanding of one another and we have a, a more profound relationship. And I think we can, we can sense things through communicating in, in different ways. But with my mother, I'm still trying to figure out that language with her. You know, I'm still trying to figure out how can we express ourselves without using these words that might really hurt us right now. And it's a shame because, you know, my parents are in their 60s. So I've been, if, I feel like I've been waiting all my life for this. You did mention the trauma. Can you speak about that specific trauma you mentioned that has been passed on from your dad to you? Yeah. So there's two things. One, the, the first one, which is extremely, which has been extremely pervasive in my life is depression. I've suffered with depression. I remember the first time that I really dealt with it was when I was like 19 in college. But my oldest sister also had a really hard time with that. And I don't know about my other sisters. I know that my oldest sister uh, and my grandfather and my father dealt with that depression and a few other members of my family. A second thing is alcoholism. So my grandfather was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. And I had real trouble with alcohol in my younger years serious trouble. And that combined with depression put me in some situations where I had to confront my father or where he had to confront me. And, uh, you know, it, there were times where some things happened where it, I, I would wonder, can I ever recover from this? Like, is my father ever going to trust me or is he ever going to you know, just terrible. Like, like I, I could, I could only imagine what I would feel like if, if, if I experienced some of those situations with my child. I can tell you one scenario in particular that happened. I was visiting from college. I think I was 20, 20 at the time, twenty or twenty-one at the time. And I was, I was. It was summertime, so I wasn't actually in classes. But I, I have, you know, I was working up here. I worked at like a restaurant or whatever, and I just came down for the weekend. And I was out drinking and I went to get the train home. I must have been like, I don't know, somewhere in, in, uh, in the Upper East Side. 
because I ended up taking the six train. And to get to the ferry, you need to get to Bowling Green, so the, the, the four line. So you have to wait for a transfer. And I must have fallen asleep in the train station. I was so drunk, I fell asleep in the train station. And I just feel somebody kicking me. And I wake up and I look up. And my father's just looking at me. And he's like, can you get up? And I'm just like, yeah, I get up. And he said nothing to me, not a word. So we rode the train. We walked to the ferry. We waited an hour for the boat. We took the boat, 30-minute boat ride. We got on the bus to go home, 15-minute bus ride. We walk five minutes to the house. We get to the front door, and he, t- he just looks at me, and he just says, don't ever do this shit again, and just went inside, and that was it. And I was like, wow. No, no conversation about why or how or... I think at this point, we both understood that there was no more needed to be said because already at that point, as a 21-year-old, I already had multiple experiences dealing with alcohol and abusing alcohol and being confronted by my parents for it and also witnessing his um, own experience with alcohol as a child growing up. And it was, you know, it it was just, uh, it was something where, and this is why I say my father and I have a relationship that I'm actually very grateful for. And, and honestly, looking back, like I don't attribute any of my hardships really to the way he handled those situations because, you know, like that alcoholism, it's like a disease. And also not only that, it's an escape, right? He, I mean, this man worked two jobs his whole, like, he barely got to see us grow up. Like I would see my father on weekends just because he was working all the time and then he'd be tired, you know, but he still did everything, everything for us. So like, I never blamed him for it. But at that point, at that moment, when he said, don't ever do it again, I, I, I knew what that meant. And, and I knew how much that meant, how hard it was for him to, to witness that. But because it's just imagine like being that, imagine seeing your son live out your mistakes, you know? So I, I was able to understand that. And it didn't take me a long time to get that, to understand that. That's the relationship that my father and I have. Now that you've had time to get therapy and really understand it from a psychological point of view, while also, you know, just getting older and having more experience, were you able to connect that depression and alcoholism basically to the way that you grew up with that sense of feeling like you weren't yourself or that a part of you was being denied? in particular with your race. I remember New Year's Eve, we would always go to Rhode Island, to Providence, to visit my dad's brothers and sisters. He's like one of eight or nine. And you have a big party. And, you know, Dominicans, what's up, baby? Right? The drinking is just a big part of the culture. So I, I work with a nonprofit. I'm vice president for this organization where we work in Haiti and DR. We'll go to DR. We'll meet, our, we'll meet like our, our local team there. And literally the first thing that they do they pick us up at the gas station. We get on the bus. We get to Puerto Plata. They pick us up from the gas station, and they just and they pass you a beer. And but we're driving, <laughs> and it's just like you know, it's you know, drinking is just a big part of Dominican culture. I mean, Dominicans love Presidente. They love Brugal. They love Black Label for whatever reason. It's just a big part of it. So you know, for me, alcohol was something that I just couldn't avoid. And I would, some New Year's, I would drink a little bit. Some I would drink a lot. Connecting it with the culture, like the alcohol part of it, 
you know, even in music, in the bachatas, they, they romanticize this relationship with alcohol, right? Like there's songs where they're saying, who's this guy? Teodoro Reyes. He's, there's a song where he's talking about something, something, Iromo. Es lo que quiero. Like he's, you know what I mean? Like they romanticize, they romanticize this. And, or, or Por el Alcohol by Frank Reyes. Por el Alcohol, right? So it's like, it's, it's just normal, right? And then the, the depression part of it, man, I mean, Latino households already do not believe in, at large, I don't want to generalize, but most of my Latino friends that are dealing with, as adults are dealing with like mental health issues, very few of them are looking for help. And it's because it goes back to this tradition of being like, uh, you know, that's just in your head. You're making that up. And then imagine being Afro-Latino. My family is telling me you're not black. You're taking that away from me. And then at the same time, they want me to, to have this machismo attitude about mental health. You're not. You're fine. Get over it. You'll be all right. Just, you know, whatever. But it's like, how can you tell me to do that when you're denying my very identity? So it's this downward spiral, but it's supported by the culture. The depression part of it is like the most understandable thing. Of course, this would happen. Of course, this trauma would develop, but it's like make-believe. Dr. Adolfo Cuevas, who we heard from earlier in the episode, and who is an Afro-Latinx person, provides context on this issue. He says that historically, people with darker color skin tones have always been dehumanized in order to create a social hierarchy where descendants of African people are at the bottom of that hierarchy construction of race and skin color has created a, a way of, of how people interact with one another, how they allocate resources and, and goods. And, and oftentimes in both Latin America and the United States, darker skinned people and, and, and people who identify as black do not receive equal treatment. Living within that unequal social construct, Dr. Cueva says, can lead people to experience racial trauma every day, like other chronic diagnosable conditions. This means literal physical manifestation that tear down people's bodies. We're seeing a lot of work now showing that people who experience uh, racial trauma have uh, what, what we consider multi-system physiological dysregulation where there's a huge wear and tear on your physiological health. And what we know about that is just that it's associated with cardiovascular disease and high risk of mortality. So, so these racial traumas are, it begins to be embedded under our skin. And just like most any other condition, there are symptoms that, if they're noticed early, can be managed. But if they're not, they can progress to dire health outcomes. Some of the most obvious symptoms involving racial traumas are connected to stressors, which Cueva says get activated during racist encounters through emotional responses like anger and affect the sympathetic nervous system. The former, of course, is connected to the body's ancient animal-like flight or fight response. You know what this is. You run into danger in the woods and your body places all of its mental and physical capacity into getting you out of there by optimizing blood flow to the parts you need to run away. But constantly being in flight or fight mode disturbs your chemical and electrical equilibrium, or what doctors call homeostasis, by flooding your body with hormones including adrenaline, norepinephrine, and cortisol, and experiencing the world under constant threat of something like racial discrimination is, they say, just like living under severe financial stress or relationship problems, leading the body to lose its ability to produce enough hormones and leaving you at risk for disease. 
And what we find is that those uh, people who experience high levels of discrimination have high cortisol. But we're also finding out is just that discrimination is not only affecting an increased uh, level of cortisol, it also affects other aspects of, of, of other biomarkers that are part of the process of reaching homeostasis again. So inflammation is one. So inflammation typically is there to basically heal any type of like tissue damage, any type of muscular damage to your body. And oftentimes, in order for you to reach homeostasis, you need some levels of inflammatory markers in order to heal yourself again. But the more and more you activate these physiological systems, they're both going to produce either really high levels of cortisol or you'll be so worn out that it's not going to produce as much cortisol as it's supposed to. And you're more susceptible to, to poor health that way. You're more likely, to, for example, to get a cold. But then at the same time, there's other biomarkers in your physiological, in your physiological self that now has been rendered much more at a higher level than, than before. Inflammation is one. Blood pressure is another one. Considering health outcomes from racism are important then, I asked Dr. Cuevas what experts like himself can do to affect social constructs that seem to be so monumental. He told me a good place to jumpstart this type of healthcare is for healthcare leadership itself to acknowledge the system fails to treat Latinx and black people equally to white patients. That way, he says, better outcomes can come even if these populations continue to face discrimination outside hospital walls. In terms of what can uh, researchers do, we have to kind of look at it from a more of a prevention lens. You know, what are some of the social structures that, that could actually be changed in order for people to not become sick in the first place? And I think the, if, if I were to put my money in something, it is, is focusing on uh, segregation. We have to find ways in order for us to really facilitate integration of, of, of races and people of, uh, of different socioeconomic status, but then at the same time, really focus on improving access to care. It sounds like you're finally, after many years of work, like you're in a good place, like you're, that you can, you can handle things. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially when you have kids, you have to just kind of learn how to manage it because you need to teach them the right lessons. So in the absence of all those things, I would have had a, an easier time raising my daughter. But because of those things, I think I can prepare her for what it's going to be like growing up as a Latina with a black father and a white mother, a white Latina mother and a black Latino father and being white passing herself. Because I'm sure that there are many people of color, you know, people of color is this interesting umbrella, right? You've got a lot of white passing Latinas and Latinos that identify as people of color. And it's because of who they identify with, their parents, their grandparents. They see themselves as that. When I was talking to my daughter at, at the protest yesterday, right here outside of my window in my neighborhood, she's asking all these questions, which is great. You know, she's curious and, and that's important. And she's saying, you know, the police don't like people that look like you. And I said, well, look around, you know, who else do you see? Anybody that looks like me different? And she's pointing people out. And then she's saying, but what about me? And I'm like, this is tricky. I'm like, so what about you? And she's like, well, I'm the same brown as you are. 
And I'm just like, man, how do I, how do I? And her mother, her mother was sitting right next to us and she says to her, okay, well, do you look like mommy or like daddy? And she looks like her mother, but she wants to look like me. She says, I look like daddy. So it's, you know, and this is, this is where it begins. This developing, this, this identity, this, this knowledge of self begins. And I'm realizing that. And I'm like, man, like I literally have a direct influence on how this child is going to grow up and see herself and experience this. And all of the traumas that follow after I'm responsible for just by this, by this moment, not only this, but every other moment after where she asked this question. So maybe if I never went through any of that stuff, I, I would not be prepared for this moment. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd. George Floyd repeatedly told the officers that he could not breathe after an officer knelt on his neck. The family of George Floyd held a memorial in his memory. My brother's gone, but the Floyd name still lives on. George Floyd. You are gone, but not forgotten. Because of you, we've come together. This is for George Floyd. It's so late to be angry. You mentioned the protest. I'd love to know what you've been thinking about over the last two weeks. What has been your experience? You said you were in Buffalo. A few days ago, we just heard that two police officers shoving an older, I think a 75-year-old white man onto the cement in Buffalo, uh, breaking open the back of his skull. He seems to be okay. Give us your perspective about that particular situation, how you feel being in the Buffalo community at the moment and your general sense of the BLM movement as you see it from where you stand? Yeah, it is so complex, right? I mean, Buffalo, if you imagine a compass, right? Buffalo is like, you can really split it up ethnic, racially in four directions. So north and south is pretty much white, white all up and down. East is black and west is like Southeast Asian and like Puerto Rican. We have a black mayor right now. After he's out of office, there'll probably be an Italian person or an Irish person or just some regular ambiguously white person, right? So the city is hyper-segregated. I mean, I live on one of like the most liberal areas in Buffalo. If I go two blocks east, I'm in a completely different area, heavily policed. Two blocks west, heavily policed. So these protests over the last couple of weeks, I've been actually uh, unpacking this. Like I've been talking with Luna's, with my daughter's mother about this over the last couple of days, because as a family, we've attended a few things together and it's kind of surreal because the first protests that happened here, they weren't organized by like, like black activist organization. It was kind of just like a, a reaction to what was happening everywhere else. And as a result of what happened in those protests, like there was property damage, riots, the city put a curfew yesterday 
there were over 2,000 people here. It was the biggest protest in Buffalo. And there were like five blocks of the most liberal area shut down. And uh, as a result, the mayor called up the curfew. He was like, this is overwhelmingly peaceful. We're going to call off the curfew. So now there are even more protests being happened. I'm actually organizing a rally for this Saturday. I'm trying to target Afro-Latinos here in Buffalo and Latinos in general, the diaspora of African people, because there's a huge issue here where they don't accept their blackness and they don't want to stand in solidarity with black people. But, you know, I was telling a friend, it doesn't matter if your name is Kenny or Kenyel, the cops are going to shoot you if they think that you're causing a problem. The protests here are interesting because now you've got a bunch of people that are not black that are popping up. And I mean, overwhelmingly, the majority of the people here are white protesting. I was literally walking to the store earlier today and there were two white girls and they were putting stickers on all of the signs, street signs that had names of black people that have been killed in the last year. And so at first, the way I felt was, okay, another black man was just killed. George Floyd came, what, three weeks after Ahmaud Arbery? Came not too long after, came not too long before Breonna Taylor. This all happened a little bit after a guy here in Buffalo that was, that was beat at a traffic stop by the cops. You know, I, there are just so many names that I don't, I don't, I can't even, I'm at the protest and I hear them yelling names and I don't even, I can't even, I can't even compartmentalize any more names. Because there are so many, you know? So at first I was a little taken aback because I'm saying, wow, all of a sudden these people just care. But now I'm seeing that it's not that they just care now. It's that the, the issue of systemic racism is so deep that it even impacts our timelines. Even our timelines are racist. White people never, they weren't seeing the videos of people being shot and killed. They weren't seeing black people protesting in the street. They weren't, if they were hearing about it, they weren't believing it because they were like, well, look around me. I don't see any problems. You guys look pretty fine to me. But now because everybody's locked down and they're in a you know, time of a pandemic, this is right in front of their face. They can't ignore it. So they're all coming out. And <clears throat> I think the protests now, I think, uh, I can only speak for Buffalo because I've been here. I think now uh, we're taking this opportunity to organize as many people as possible, to keep people out in the street, and to force the people in power to change things. Like those 50 officers that resigned, I mean, goodbye. The issue really, uh, I think, comes down to, are they still being paid? Because, uh, you know, we just, we just had a budget approved in the city of Buffalo this past week. And there was a huge increase to the police department, like $20 million. And a lot of that money, I mean, in New York, say there's like a police brutality case and there's a settlement with an officer. It's our money that pays that settlement. It doesn't come out of the police officer's pension or salary. So a police officer can resign, but they're still on the payroll. But when it comes down to like the reality on the ground, like in the moment, I don't think anybody really gives a shit about those officers. People are paying attention to what's happening on the street. And they're like, okay, who's organizing what next? And now that it's been like a week or two where people, where white people have been vocal and like present, now I'm feeling more energy to pick up a banner and like get people out and just get them in the street and just get them like talking about it. Like, because you know what? They're here, they're going to listen. And they're the ones that really right now are, are the ones who 
have the power. I feel like there's a lot of um, potential right now in this time, not only for civic engagement, but also for black business. So I think, I think it's the situation's evolving and it's becoming something where like, um, you know, uh, I think there's different levels to it. Like level one is how can black people and black businesses take advantage of this hype right now? Because what we've seen in the past is people are engaged for a little while and then they forget. And level two is, well, how can we sustain this momentum and how can we keep people that were never engaged in this dialogue? Can we get them to expand it? And level three is really like, you know, just straight up like dismantling systems of, of racism and oppression and, and doing that together along with white people, Asians, black people, you know, but we've got a long way to go. The way that you're trying to appeal to Afro-Latinos, in a way, it's a sense of realizing and self-identifying with the way that the world is, right? The way that the world sees them. What would you say to those Latinos that uh, maybe are not Black presenting, that are not Afro-Latino, that, uh, you know, there's a lot of Latino allies that have not had this experience. How do you make them see what, what's happening? This idea that Latinos are different than North Americans. I mean, the, the difference between us is uh, cultural. It's geography, right? You know, people from Europe came on boats across the ocean and they went north or they went south and they brought slaves with them. And those slaves followed the north or south. But I think the issues of of racism that we're faced with in Latin America are much larger than what, what we face in North America. And I say that because, you know, there was a really unique situation that evolved in Latin America and especially in the Caribbean. And to Afro-Latinos, especially Dominicans, I just try to point out parts of the history that maybe they misunderstood. For example, the relationship with Haiti. You know, there's a, and, and DR, there's a huge, a huge anti-Haitian sentiment. And it's the same island. It's the same island. And you know, what's interesting is that the island used to be Haiti. It wasn't Dominican Republic and Haiti. It was always Haiti. And it was Santo Domingo and San Domingo, the French and the Spanish colonies, the same name, just different languages. And the Haitian revolution is like, it's like the first black republic in the world. It's true that the island Haiti and the Dominican Republic share has been the ground of political and racial conflict for more than 200 years. What started as their Spanish colonization in the 1800s led to self-government in the 1900s that enforced what social scientists describe as a colonizing mindset, that a real Dominican is white and a black person is Haitian. The person most associated with that ideology in the Dominican, according to Edmund T. Gordon, professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as Dr. Richardson, was President Rafael Trujillo. Rafael Trujillo, who used race as a way to try to unify the country in terms of creating this white identification. So even the darkest Dominicans would refuse to acknowledge themselves as being black. Only Haitians were black. You know, black, black people were slaves. Th those are, that's not us. 
You know, that's, right. that's how it's identified. So it makes sense, you know, and Puerto Rico was, was similar, you know, not, maybe not as politically constructed, but was very similar in the sense that blackness is not a way that many Puerto Ricans identify themselves. That narrow mindset is still around to this day, even with black people who are physically black but do not see themselves as such. It's what Dr. Cuevas calls high-level mental gymnastics. Cuevas says it all has to do, again, with members of a stigmatized group thinking that if they identify with the upper-class race, their ability to potentially move up the socioeconomic ladder improves. This form of assimilation, he says, is what Italians, Irish people, and other immigrants have done in the U.S. for years. Regardless, people in the Dominican Republic who descended from Haiti are Haitian immigrants, or Dominicans in Haiti who are black, period, often do not have the same opportunities, not even when receiving legal documentation to work and study in the country. In the following clip from AJ+, we meet Sanon Brazil, a man who was born in the Dominican but was removed by the government and placed in a refugee center in Haiti. Put me in a bus and then they locked me up in a detention facility. And in the morning, they took me to the border. I walked from the border until I arrived here to live. I was dumped here. I have nowhere to live. I don't have clothes. I don't have a plate. I don't have a spoon. There's nothing to eat. I'm struggling So now the conversation I have to have with, with Afro-Latinos, with Dominicans is, hey guys, first of all, we, you know, we're, we're wrong about our own history as Black people. We have a certain disdain for our own Blackness. Not only that, but we see our, our brothers and sisters right next to us as lesser than, as the enemy, as the oppressor. And I, what I've seen now is I've seen that conversation actually happening, which is interesting. But just because it's happening among people that work in the media and tech startups doesn't mean it's happening in families where you've got black parents, white kids, white parents, black kids. That's a tough sell for them there. There was a business in, uh, in Staten Island where I'm from and a friend of mine from high school posted on social media saying this guy organized this group called like uh, angels of the south which is like the south shore staten island is split between north and south north is where all the minorities live closer to manhattan and brooklyn and south is where all the white people live closer to jersey and um these people are saying oh the rioters are coming our way i've got a gun who's got a gun i'll be shooting from my porch you know i need to protect my sons and you know whatever just crazy stuff so she put them on blast and she's like hey here's his here's his business boycott it 
he sent her this like long email saying, I'm so sorry. I don't even know what that's about. You know, I agree with what you're doing. Yada, yada, yada. He's just trying to save his ass, you know, but, but, but we, but we already saw you. We see you. We know who you are noted and that's it. Once again, this episode of Tequeria is brought to you in collaboration with Technology Transformation Services, or TTS, whose mission is to design and deliver a digital government with and for the American public. Now let's hear more from TTS employee Leilani Martinez, Director of Content and Outreach at USAGov, a TTS platform that makes it easier for everyone to find and understand the government services and information they need. Could you give a sense of the type of support that a potential applicant will receive? Or maybe once, you know, if they get hired, if they get chosen to be a part of this, what kind of support does TTS provide its, its fellows, its, the people that are working there? What does it look like on a day-to-day basis? Because I think a lot of people that are considering this option in their careers, they don't want to just be placed and then kind of left alone. I'd love to know the role of TTS leadership in helping develop these careers? You're going to find people that are extremely committed and passionate about the work we do. I say that the best asset that we have are the people, the hearts and the minds, super smart people, very committed. Um, Even in moments where um, we might be um, dealing with a lot, right? I always say, let's remember why we're here. We're here to serve the people to serve the public and that for me has really has kept me going for 17 years because I'm I'm I am very proud that the fact that every day I can have a direct um, impact on on someone's life so when when you get here you're going to feel very supported um, people are going to want you to succeed um, because if you succeed we all succeed it is definitely a team effort I know with my team I'm very proud of everything that we do. We're very supportive. We're very collaborative. We want people to grow and, and to, to evolve. Um, like I said, I started as the manager or point of contact of USA Gov and Español um, 17 years ago. I'm now the director of the content and outreach division of USA Gov. So there's a lot of potential. Um, I think I'm an example of that. Uh, there's a lot of potential to really, to really grow to really explore many different opportunities. Um, I think it's also really exciting because, which is a, a challenge in the work that we do, but it's also very exciting because in addition to the regular kind of O&M and the day-to-day work that you have to do, you're constantly thinking, okay, what else? What's coming? What are the trends? We're thinking a lot of voice search technology. So. It gives you the opportunity to really be exposed to different things, but also to constantly be challenge yourself, right? Like, what else? What else can I propose? Is there something else here um, that we should be exploring in addition to doing your day-to-day work? Because at the end of the day, we have products that we have to maintain. We have products that we want to um, grow, but we're not stagnant. We're not just stuck. Um, and you're going to get all that kind of support because we're all kind of feeling that same thing that we all need to move forward together. And there's there's um, different groups. Um, we have guilds within TTS. So in addition to being in a particular group, right, you're, 
organizational structure, you have to be in a team, et cetera. There's opportunity to actually interact with people outside of your team. So if you're interested in research techniques, et cetera, there's a guild group that work on that. And you can be part of that kind of unofficially. But that's when people from across TTS who are, have an interest in research related topics, they get together on a regular basis. If you're interested in the topic of content, you can get together with people from across TTS. So there's opportunity constantly to learn. That's awesome. Thanks, Leilani. To learn more about open and upcoming job opportunities at Technology Transformation Services, visit join.tts.gsa.gov. And now let's continue the podcast. Boycotting businesses has been a tactic for social justice advocates for a long time, but they haven't always had an effect because of the structural power of racial categorization. Based on sociological literature, racial categorization is an academic term that in the United States describes the situation where there are original structural inequalities between two main racial categories, white and black, and anyone else who is not a part of this binary construct, be it Latinx, Asian, Southeast Asian, or anyone else ends up having to choose a category they belong to, or more often, one is chosen for them in order for them to figure out where they stand in society. Some social researchers and journalists, like New York Times reporter Isabel Wilkerson, call these categorizations a simple part of a caste system. Professor Richardson describes them further in our interview. So as people started immigrating to this country from non-European places, you know, mostly in 1965 and after, immigrants had to make a choice. You know, do we want to be seen as being closer to Black people and therefore be considered inferior and treated poorly because of it, be discriminated against because of it? Or do we want to try to um, identify more with white people and be treated well? So you do get this construction of kind of this, this pan-Hispanic identity that, that becomes an American phenomenon where people from, you know, you know, Mexico and Cuba are all of a sudden who really have very, very different backgrounds, histories, you know, culture, cultural cultures um, are all of a sudden lumped into this group together. And it did become a very uh, white identified group. So then what happens to someone who is Afro-Latinx, who doesn't fit into that idea of, of what we've created as Latinidad here or as, you know, this pan-Hispanic identity? So I think, you know, looking at someone like Piri Thomas, there really wasn't much choice for him. He either had to identify and assimilate into African-American culture and take on that identity, or he was just kind of left in no man's land. You know, and, you know, and quite frankly, people treated him as black, whether he chose to identify so or not. So he ended up having to make that choice to identify more with the African-American community. While this binary racial construction has not ended and certain political parties keep trying to reinforce it, young people from smaller racial groups have made headway in recent years redefining themselves outside of it. Professor Richardson says the ability for these groups, including Afro-Latinx, to find acceptance and support has expanded because of the internet, and most recently through social media. 
Afro-Latinx people now just appear and are, are just kind of visible in pop culture in a way that they didn't used to be. We're even talking about like Dominicans and, you know, like just Caribbean people in a way that just didn't happen before or, you know, or other parts of Latin America. I think hip hop in particular has been a force where you start to really see some Afro-Latinx people gain more visibility and be able to speak up and just say, hey, this is who I am. A consequence of more people in the United States becoming aware of racial categorizations and fighting back against it is the effect it has on children of immigrants who go back to the old country to understand how white-black dynamics are also a part of it. It makes them more politically active and makes them want to affect change there like how Matthew wants to have in the Dominican Republic. You run a nonprofit and uh, you also worked in the tech business. I'd love for you if you can talk about your career. So yeah, so I, I did my undergrad at University at Buffalo and I studied international trade, like human geography, international trade. Then I psychology for my graduate degree, a subset of positive psychology, focusing on creativity and innovation. I started my own consulting company, which is called Diversely NYC. And I've worked with a few startups. My last client was BrainCo, based in Boston. They're like a, a, brain, a brain tech company. Really interesting work they're doing. But really, the work that I, that I really, really wanted to do with my company was kind of related to what I did in tech, which was cultural change, attitudinal behavioral change in companies. Uh, part of my master's work was research on the mental and collaborative processes that people go through when they try to approach change or when they experience change. I've been doing that work here in Buffalo. And my not, I started working with a friend of mine. We do work in Haiti and Dominican Republic. So essentially, we support school communities, but we're trying to bridge a gap between the two countries. So our, our hope is that, you know, in building this relationship with, with these communities, you know, as these kids grow older and as we, as we foster more exchange between the diaspora here and the island over there, that we can create a bridge to foster more understanding between young Haitians and Dominicans. And my personal goal is to get 20 Dominicans from here, their dual citizenship. Mm. Just 20 this year. I want to get 20 people. It's very easy. If you're, if you're, for those listening, if your parent is a Dominican, is born in the Dominican Republic, they have a cedula. They were at one point citizens of Dominican Republic. It's your right to have a citizenship in Dominican Republic. If you are a citizen in Dominican Republic, you can vote in Dominican elections. You can influence Dominican politics. We send over $5 billion a year in remittances to Dominican Republic. After tourism, that's the second biggest industry. So it's naive to say that we don't have an impact on the outcomes, you know, on the, on the culture there. And the racism that people experience there is way worse than the racism that Dominicans experience here. Dominicans here are, are, are fighting against themselves. Dominicans there, I mean, a couple of years ago, how many thousands were deported? Dominicans of Haitian descent were deported to Haiti, a country they'd never known. You know, so, so that's a goal of mine through the nonprofit work. There are different ways that Latinx deal with racism in their own communities. But because the nature of the historical rejection of black people by Latinx communities and of their imposed segregation in American communities, most Afro-Latino or Hispanics identify as black. And, according to Dr. Cuevas, 
they're more likely to live in segregated black neighborhoods with non-Hispanic blacks. Dr. Cuevas felt this connection to black culture himself growing up in a predominantly Dominican neighborhood in New York City. But I, I think it wasn't until I moved to uh, the West Coast for, for five years, I was living in Oregon, that I wasn't able to be surrounded by, by Dominicans, that I needed to find a community, and which was a, the, there was a basically, you know, Port, Portland, Oregon is a, f- a very white city. And the community that I, I ended up connecting with the most was, uh, was the black community there. And so my identity, you know, as I mentioned before, like identity shifts depending on where you are. My black identity was basically much more salient there. And I was able to gain a, a whole new uh, level and appreciation to, uh, of, of my blackness compared to if I was just back in, in New York City, where I think Dominican would be much more at the forefront. The, the, but, but going back to, to New York City, I think one of the best things is just that you could oftentimes find yourselves in communities where they're proud of 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 their of their blackness and and growing up near Harlem, you know, I was able to just walk down the streets and or attend many of these events that are about promoting black power. And so I think a lot of that really affected my both my identity and, and identification of of my blackness. Kia Fiara Melendez also grew up in New York and found connection and strength with her other female friends who were also Afro-Latinx. She also had a strong mother who made her love her black and her Latina sides. But her work as a social worker has made her see how racism makes young kids fearful, leading them to put up emotional walls. I think that there is a, a protective factor that they walk around with right? Because they've had negative experiences. So, and when I say that they're walking around with protect, like trying to protect themselves, it's like they're hypervigilant to the different things that are happening. So if they see a video, right, of like George Floyd, or they see that something else happened in their particular neighborhood, their own experiences are definitely heightened because of their past experiences. So I think that there's like this armor, that Afro-Latinos walk around with, in all honesty. And not being able to really talk about the racial trauma that exists. And Professor Richardson, who also grew up in New York, says seeing other people's struggles as your own is the best way to cut short differences between communities to understand each other better. And that that is pertinent when we're talking about Latinos and Black people. Afro-Latinx, in particular Afro-Latino men, have had to deal with all of the same kind of racial racism and criminalization um, and violence that African-American men have dealt with in this country. Latino men were also harassed and brutalized by police officers. So that's one way that we can acknowledge that the two groups are experiencing similar things. You know, they're in terms of the history of the communities, you know, during the 60s and 70s, you know, you had, you know, Chicano power movement happening at the same time as the Black power movement. You know, we had revolutionary thought intertwined, you know, in New York, the Young Lords, the Puerto Rican group, the Young Lords were this revolutionary young group of people who were fighting for racial equality and income equality right along next to the Black Panthers. 
So we've been intertwined for a long time in many ways. Part of that's on the African-American community as well. We have not really acknowledged the fact, for instance, Afro-Latinos in particular were involved in African-American culture for years. You know, Afro Arturo Schomburg was a major researcher of Black life and culture. And we have a major research library in in New York named after him. He's of Puerto Rican descent. He's a Black Puerto Rican. Some of the founders of hip-hop were... Latino guys, you know, Lee Quinones, who was featured in the first hip hop film. Depending on how black you are, makes a big difference. You know how, I mean, I'm sure same thing in Mexican culture, you know, depending on, on the shade of your skin. Well, I grew up partly in Mexico. I grew up both here in, in Oakland and California and in Mexico. I went to school in Mexico between kindergarten and seventh grade. The family would come back every summer and winter break. When I was in school, and this is where people don't believe, is that I used to be one of the morenitos, you know? <laughs> then, and for people, you know, that don't understand, morenitos is the brownies. Yep. You know, it's like, you know, it's not necessarily like black, but it's like there's black people and there's black Mexicans. And being part of the morenito group means that you're one of the people that's not white. So, I mean, it's such a part of the culture that it's ingrained that people don't even think about it for somebody to call me a part of the Morenitos in third or fourth grade. I was very lucky to have good families that built us up. And they said that you are a good kid and you're smart and you're a good person. But again, and within the context of what's happening with BLM, I'm starting to see a lot of Latinos, including myself, understand that I am still wider than an Afro-Latinx yep. person, yeah, like in terms of this culture, I still am more privileged than a black person in this country because yeah. I am not black. And I think that's real talk and understanding. I, and I've had run-ins, run-ins with the police. Uh, just a year ago, I, w- I just got my ass beat by the police when I was just walking to my parents' house, coming from a bar. But at the same time, I, I don't wake up and think I'm going to get shot like, or chased down by like white vigilantes. Like I met Aubrey, I don't think I'm going to get shot up in my car like Philando Castile, you know? So I live with that security, although I do live with the fear that I might get pulled over because I, I get pulled over all the time. There was a pulling over yeah, story. There's, there's been a few, but the, the one most recent one was I was picking up my daughter from her babysitter, which is in North Buffalo. So it's like about two or three miles away from where I live. And it's in the village of Kenmore. So once you cross this one street, the, the police become Buffalo Public or they become Kenmore Police. And so I'm driving down the street, 30 miles an hour is the speed limit. I'm going like 25 and I see a cop. I come out of my babysitter's block and I see the cop parked by the, this parking lot. And, you know, it's funny, like, I think a lot of black people will have this experience. And it goes back to my dad telling me, you know, you need to always have this, this 360 point of view. I already knew the cop was there and I knew he was going to follow me and I knew he was going to stop me. So I'm preparing myself. Let me slow down a little bit. Let me um, make sure I'm buckled up, you know, daughter's buckled up. Let me make sure mirrors are straight. My car is brand new. So everything's working, but he saw me and I saw him. That's, that's all it takes. Okay. What happens before I make it to Kenmore Avenue, which is where you're now in the city of Buffalo. I mean, now in the jurisdiction of the Buffalo police, he pulls me over and he comes to the car and you know, it was one of those days where I had a long day of work. 
I was writing like a, a really big paper for school. I was tired. My kid's crying. She's hungry. I got to pick up her mom from work too. And uh, I'm just like, I don't have time for this. I rolled down the window and I'm just like, good afternoon. And he's like, do you know why I stopped you? And I'm just like, honestly, I have no idea. I have no idea why you stopped me. And this is the moment right here where this is the conversation we need to have. I, I just gave this officer major lip and he didn't kill me. He didn't kill me. But what if, what but, so I just told him, I said, I don't know why you stopped me, you know, but what are the, th- but black parents always tell you if the officer, stop, you, you be respectful, you be polite, you give him what he wants. You say what you need to do. You get out of there alive. But I was like, fuck this. I've had it. And uh, he started getting crazy. And mind you, the window, I rolled it down like halfway, not the whole way. So he's like, I want your license registration. And I'm just like, I don't want to give it to you. I, don't, I shouldn't have to. I was going the speed limit. I do this every single day. This is regular routine for me. What do you want? What, tell me why you tell first. Tell me why you tell me. And he just couldn't tell me, which I honestly, legally, I don't know if he has to or not in New York, you know, but I just, I just, I wasn't in the mood because I, it was just like so many encounters with the police where I just didn't feel like it. And he tried opening my car door to get me out of the car and I pulled, pulled the door back and I, and you know, and I'm like, dude, like, you, you know, like, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, get out now before I break your window. And my kid's screaming, you know, and like there's cars passing by and I'm like, you know, no. So I start honking the horn, like super loud. My kid's screaming, cars are stopping and looking. Another cop car pulls up. He looks at the cop car and he was just like, okay, okay, you need to relax. The reason why I stopped you was because you've got this parking pass in your rearview mirror and that's an obstruction of vision and I can give you a ticket for that. And I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, really? You saw that as I was going past the 30 miles? Every other car that with air fresheners on their rear, you don't, what? This is a parking pass, you know? And so it's just like that kind of, like that kind of stuff that, that people, you know, it, he lied. He made an excuse. And then, you know, getting my ass beat by the cops a year ago, that was definitely like, for me, that was a, a, a point at which I had a realization that even though I'm safe in some instances, it really comes down to the discretion of the person holding the power, what they want to do to you. I, I was walking home from a bar, uh, having a drink with a friend from high school. I was in town for work and it must've been like 1130. And I'm, I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to walk through the park around the hospital. But literally I saw a cop car drive past me and it stops at a green light. So my immediate reaction is turn around and walk the other way, which I do. Another cop car speeds in front of me. That cop car comes behind me. Two unmarked cars come and I'm like circled on the sidewalk. So my first reaction is throw my hands up. They push me against the wall, like, you know, with like their like knee and like shoulder, like elbow of my back, like to keep me pinned against the wall. They took my wallet out of my pocket and started looking through my things for identification. And they're like telling me, you know, who are you? Like, where are you going? What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going home. I live here. I live two minutes away. Look at my ID. It says my address. And they're like, oh, you have anything on you that's going to, that, that, that can, uh, do you have anything on you that can cause me harm or whatever? Or that can, and I'm like, no, like I have keys in my pocket. They're like, what's that in your pocket? What's that sharp? I'm at, that's, those are my keys. Those are my house keys. What's, what's that? It's a lighter. Why do you have that? I'm like, it's a lighter. What do you mean? Like, you know, whatever. 
And I saw like in the corner of my eye, one cop is writing down something. He's like writing my information. I'm like, what are you doing? <clears throat> He's like, I'm filing a report. I'm like, why? I didn't do anything wrong. Well, we have, you know, uh, you fit a description of a suspected robbery. So I, I started causing a huge scene. And again, this is where the conversation has to happen. I got out of it. I got out of it. I started, I started talking my way out of it. You know, they saw that I, I knew that what they were doing was wrong and they just fucking let me go. But what if I was like a, a shade darker or what if my name was a little different? You know, would they have let me Did they go? hit you? Yeah, they roughed me up. Like they pushed me against the wall. Like I was trying to resist and they were like, you know, hitting me in the back and like pushing me with my face against the wall. Like I had, I had a, I had like a, a huge bruise on my chest and it was painful. And so I, I went home and like, I just, I cried to my parents and my mom actually a week later went to a town hall meeting at that precinct and they weren't even trying to hear it. And that precinct is oh, the really? one, yeah, it's the 122 in Staten Island. It's the, it's the precinct in New York city where if you like, if you kill somebody, they send you there. Like where Eric Garner was killed, that's that precinct. Oh my God. That's that precinct. So, uh, you know, th- that's where they send the cops that like, that have like lawsuits against them. They go, okay, go to Staten Island, go to that precinct. And, and so after I get out of the situation, they followed me home. <laughs> okay. They followed me home. The undercover cops followed me home and were like blowing kisses at me the whole entire way home, like harassing me, you know? But the thing, the point is that I got out of it. You know, I got away. I got lucky. What would you say to somebody that's going to listen to this podcast? What would you say about what you want them to think about? Two things based on my experience, because, you know, every experience of Afro-Latinos are going to be totally different. The first thing I would say is for those with children, take them to these protests. Of course, if it's safe, if you can. Here, they've been overwhelmingly peaceful. So I've been lucky enough to take my daughter and actually... I can show you the sign that that we made for her tomorrow for the protest. The oh, that's awesome. Tomorrow, yeah. It's for education reform. So she goes to a bilingual school. And this is my side. So listen to black teachers and students, right? So I would say take your kids to these protests, talk to them about race, explain to them what's happening, challenge their current perception of reality, because that's the greatest gift you can give them and have those conversations. Professor Melendez says that her and her colleagues have worked for years on how to best teach kids about racism and the Black Lives Matter movement in a way they understand and doesn't scare them. She talked to her students over Zoom after the violence in Minnesota and the killing of George Floyd, and she said that all she asked them was, how are you guys feeling? And is everyone okay? And do you want to share your thoughts? She also says that she made sure her daughter knew what she was doing when she was making signs to protest and why they were important. And what's interesting is that they, they are able to verbalize the divide that they feel, even going into different communities. Right? How do they do that? So just saying, oh, I went with my mom downtown and I saw people staring at us and I okay. felt, right? Like something so simple, but it's not simple when it comes to people of color. And the second thing I'll say is find somebody you can mentor. So this rally that I'm organizing is specifically a rally for black lives. And I want to talk to these people and say, hey, like the history is so complex, but like the issues really are the same. 
everybody here needs to join together and we need to focus on these huge issues of uh, systemic racism. And if that means you're coming from Mexican community, challenge your Mexican friends. If you're coming from a Colombian community, challenge your Colombian friends and just try to try to bring them over to the perspective that we are really not all treated the same. And Latinos are, we're diverse. So those two things I would say, get the young people involved and challenge the people around you. Thanks so much, Matthew. This has been an incredible conversation. I'm really grateful for making some time. Now to play us off is a great classical artist based in Bay Area, Mia Pixley. She was also an Afro-Latina, and she told me she also did not fully come into her own, into a true understanding of her blackness until her late teens and 20s. In a future episode, we will talk to her about how that happened and what she did to change it for the better. We'll also talk about her newest album, which she's working on now. In the meantime, let's listen to one of her previous hits, Where You Stood. Only the bed hears the long, hard days for me. Only the bed could be something good. The row in the back is the only place for me. Cause I could never stand right where you stood, where you stood, where you stood, where you stood, where you stood. The strength of your profile shown silhouetted by sunlight the crease in your cheek when your grin always said it was all right it was all right
always remain Only the bad could be something good The row in the back is the only place for me I just want you to stand right where you stood Where you That's the end of the Thicket Up podcast. I want to thank Matthew Sayas, Professor Jill Richardson, Dr. Adolfo Cuevas, and Professor Kia Fiara Melendez, as well as Mia Pixley for allowing us to use her music. You can follow all of them online on Twitter or LinkedIn, and you can find Mia's work on Spotify. This episode was produced by Points of Presence Media and Neil Godbole at his Airship Laboratory studio in Richmond, California. As always, we want to thank you, the listeners, for choosing to spend your time with us. Please remember to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, and Radio Public. More important, if you like the show, leave us a rating and a message. That helps the platforms know which shows have a passionate following and helps them promote them. When it comes to Latinx shows and media, remember that we are usually set aside or put in the background of shows made by other companies that don't have diversity and inclusivity in mind like we do. If you're interested in joining the Tequeria community, which now has nearly 10,000 awesome people from dozens of countries around the world, please go to tequeria.org. Finally, we are looking for sponsors. If you are a person who makes financial decisions for your company or know someone who does, please send us a message through our platforms on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Simply look for the Tequeria pod. And you can even send me a direct email to T-O-L-T-E-C-H at ProtonMail.com. That's Toltec at ProtonMail.com. Or our company email at contact at pointsofpresence.io. Have a great day and see you at the Tequeria.